Hello everyone, welcome back to another Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to do another retro review, going all the way back to 1995, to take a look at the Complete Ninja's Handbook. Now before we take a look at the book itself, I'd just like to talk a little bit about ninjas. They're, they're interesting and... Let's be honest, a lot of what we know about ninjas from popular culture isn't really going to uh, be in perfect agreement with what we know about historical ninjas. Now, ninjas are also known by the name Shinobi, and I believe I read somewhere that the difference between them, it's its really the same word. It's just one way is how it's pronounced in uh, Japanese and the other is how it's pronounced in Chinese. The proper term, I believe, is actually shinobi. Uh, the term ninja really didn't come into common use until after World War II. Now, when most people think of a ninja, they think of someone wearing that full-body suit that's black and the mask that you can only see the eyes. Now, the the suit here, and I apologize, I forgot the, the term for it, but uh, the we'll just call it a ninja suit for now. These suits actually originated in Japanese theater. And I read a couple different possible interpretations for it, uh, one is it may have had its roots in a form of Japanese puppet theater, where the puppeteers would wear these black suits, and the goal was you wanted to, it's because you wanted to get the audience to focus on the puppet, not on you. The other theory is that they may have been adopted from uh, clothing that Japanese stagehands would have wore. And the reason these stagehands wore these all-black suits, sometimes with the mask, sometimes without, is because it was supposed to be telling the audience not to pay attention to you. Uh, so again, you're going to focus more on the actors. So I think it is kind of fitting, though, that ninjas may have uh, adopted this suit for those reasons, because, you know, you have this... this uh intention that these suits are meant to make you not focus on the person wearing them. And since ninjas are most well known for being people that like to sneak around, that's actually very fitting, at least in my opinion. Now, what was the actual purpose of a ninja? They could serve many purposes. Uh, They could be spies, they could be sabuteurs, Uh, They could be mercenaries, and when the need called for, they could be assassins as well. Though, there is this one uh, internet series I watch occasionally, uh, Culture Shock, and uh, the host of that show, Gaijin Goomba, um, he did an episode about ninjas in video games, and he talked a lot about how most of the ninjas we see in video games nowadays really aren't very good representatives of what ninjas were believed to have been like. One thing he did mention in that, though, is assassination and actually combat in general was the last resort. And 
the reason I the reason he gave is because well if you're trying to sneak into a palace or you know sneak into some place and you kill someone well now you got to hide the body and that's just going to waste time uh, of course if you don't hide the body then someone finds it and they're going to alert the uh, other guards probably one of the most well-known weapons of the ninja is the ninjato sword which D&D usually puts it about the same uh, level as a short sword. It's believed the ninjato is actually a Hollywood creation because there's no surviving examples of a historical ninjato. More likely, there's another type of uh, sword that predated the katana, and I apologize, I forgot the name of it, but it was uh, just a, a straight sword. So that could have been one possible historical model for a ninjato. Though in reality, the ninja would use any weapon he could get his hands on uh, for his missions. So, you know, knives, daggers, katana, staff, firearms, whatever it takes to get the job done. And one of the reasons that ninjas would try to learn many different weapons is because since because of their role as spies sometimes they might have to try to pass them off as a soldier so it's one thing to be carrying around a spear or a sword but you never know when you might have to prove that you can actually fight with it but perhaps the most dangerous weapon in the ninja's arsenal was actually his reputation what other people thought he could do. Folklore has given ninjas a variety of supernatural powers. They were believed to be able to fly, walk on water, control the elements, and even they were believed to be able to change into different types of plants and animals. In reality, these abilities were probably just exaggerations of the real skills that a ninja would possess. Since they were often used as spies, they would study things like camouflage, wilderness survival, uh, ways to distract people who are pursuing them, and even explosives. So they would definitely be uh, able to use any firearms or you know, explosive devices that were available back then. So let's take a scenario. Let's say you've got a ninja that wants to break into a palace. Well, what he might do is cause an explosion or light a fire in a place that's going to distract the the guards. And then he would use his uh, stealthing abilities to get in and do what he needs to do. Now on his way out, if he was spotted and if he was trying to uh, escape his pursuers, he might use his knowledge of camouflage to disguise himself as, you know, among the the bushes or the trees or wherever he could possibly find a place to hide. Now, as far as the walking on water, it is believed that ninjas may have uh, had, they may have had these, raft-like shoes they wore that could allow them to uh, go over 
uh, bodies of shallow water or, you know, just make their way through muddy or marshy terrain without being slowed down too much. Another interesting way that ninjas would carry out their assassinations sometimes is they would uh, hide in a pond and they would use a, a hollowed out reed as a breathing tube and they would have a little dart in there and when they saw their target they would shoot a dart from this blowgun at, at their victim. And this was actually proven to be somewhat plausible in an episode of Mythbusters. So if any of you remember that show, uh, Mythbusters, uh, it went about debunking various urban legends. And they they had special episodes like, I know they did have one about sharks, and they did do one episode about ninjas, and they tried uh, testing some of these ninja skills and pieces of equipment that they were believed to have used, and they had a the three of the hosts, not the main ones, um, I think Jamie and Adam, but uh, there's the two gentlemen and the lady, I, I can't remember their names right now, but they went into a swimming pool and they actually did use uh, the, you know, these little blowguns that had a dart, and one of them was actually able to hit a a target, so they ruled that as plausible. Now, of course, there have been attempts to introduce ninjas into Dungeons and Dragons. I remember in an old episode, I'm sorry, an old issue of Dragon Magazine, they did have an article about ninjas. I don't think they presented a ninja class in there. They just talked about the uh, different types of specialized equipment they would use, such as those raft shoes. I believe they also had something that... uh. There was a kite that ninjas were believed to have used to try to to glide, and also uh, talked about some of the primitive uh, explosive devices they may have used. And another one they talked about, which was interesting, and again, I apologize, I forgot the name of it, but it was basically a hollowed-out eggshell that you would fill with uh, things like ground pepper, or sand, or... Uh, some sort of debris, so you would use that to throw it at an opponent to temporarily blind them. And another interesting technique they may have used is uh, sometimes they may have put some, you know, ground pepper around the, you know, the, the top of their sword sheath. So that way, when they drew their sword, it would spray out this cloud of pepper that could possibly distract an opponent. Now, we can find an attempt at making a ninja character in Oriental Adventures. And in this first edition supplement, ninjas are kind of unusual. They're actually multi-class characters. They are, one of their classes is going to be the ninja, of course. And then for the other, they choose either the Bushi, Sohi, Wujen, or Yakuza and I may have mispronounced those, but uh, essentially what they were, the Bushi is a fighter, the uh, Sohi is a warrior priest, the Wujen is a wizard, and the Yakuza is essentially a thief. So then as you leveled up, you would gain your regular class level, and you'd gain your ninja level, and then you'd gain all sorts of weird semi-mystical abilities, and 
and these would actually be carried over into the uh, Ninja's Handbook. There's also something else that they introduced in 1st Edition Oriental Adventures that would also be carried over into the Ninja's Handbook, and that is Martial Arts which we're going to be talking about uh, in a moment or two here uh, because I want to focus mainly on the Ninja's Handbook and not Oriental Adventures. But who knows, maybe someday I'll do a come back and do a retro review on that. But on to 2nd edition, the complete Ninja's Handbook. Written by Aaron Alston with interior artwork by Fred Fields, Clyde Caldwell, and Les Dorsheed. I think that's how his last name is pronounced. But it's uh, about the same size as your normal complete handbook series. Uh, clocks in here at 127 pages long. And I actually really like this book because it contains information that's not only good for ninja characters, but also you can use some of this stuff for other characters as well. Now, in the first chapter, they do introduce the ninja class, and they talk a little bit about uh, ninjas and the history uh, behind them. Again, very brief. They only dedicate a a few paragraphs to it, so most of this section is going to be your crunch, your game mechanics. Ninjas essentially were rogues. Um, However, they had slightly better combat options, They could use any weapon, and they also had a little bit better uh, armor use. They could wear up to chainmail, and they could even use a shield, which, of course, this would help them uh, pass off as uh, fighters or um, other types of adventurers. Naturally, they do get thieving abilities, and they get backstab. Instead of Thieves Can't, uh, ninjas also have a type of secret language, clan signs, which would allow them to communicate with uh, secretly with their other members of their clan. Now, they don't get the ability to use scrolls like uh, a normal thief does. At least most ninjas don't. And uh, like many classes, they do have the potential to gain followers. In the ninja's case they're usually just going to gain uh, lower-level ninjas, so people that they're expected to teach, mentor, and uh, take care of. Of course, there's a variety of ninja kits available. Some of them really aren't that interesting, uh, at least if you're looking at them purely from a game mechanic standpoint, but there are a few that I think would be interesting and fun to play. One of them is the Consort. And this is essentially a ninja that relies primarily on charm and charisma. Um, so while they may do their their spying and their espionage, they're not going to sneak in. They're going to focus more on infiltrating by using their charm and their personality. Uh, probably one of the, the more interesting kits if you want to play a ninja that Uh, has these mystical abilities, they have one called the Spirit Warrior. So the Spirit Warrior does have a little bit uh, more limited weapon selection than other ninjas do, but they do gain the abilities to use uh, scrolls as well as illusionist spells, 
which as you probably can understand are quite uh, useful for uh, ninjas because since they do like to, or they're usually used for spying and infiltration, their spells can actually be very useful. Uh, some examples of the ninja spells, one of them, Face Blur. Uh, basically, it makes your facial, facial features look unremarkable. So there's a chance that if someone sees you, they're not really going to remember enough of you to be able to uh, give an accurate description of what you look like. Another one that can be very useful if you're trying to escape false tracks, so you can make it look like instead of footprints, you're actually leaving like deer tracks or rabbit tracks. Another spell that actually I've uh, seen up one player use uh, to an interesting effect, uh, there's a couple types of distraction spells. And essentially what they're used for is they're great for while distracting guards. Uh, for example, if you cast a distraction spell on your on a guard, and if he fails a saving throw, he might like, well, feel thirsty, or might feel like he has to go to the bathroom, or maybe he feels like he has an itch on the bottom of his foot that he needs to remove his footwear in order to get at. So again, not really much in the way of damaging spells, mostly spells that can help you infiltrate and escape uh, pursuers. Another interesting kit is the Lone Wolf Ninja. One of the things they focus on in the book is they do talk about how ninjas are very clannish. And you're expected to be completely loyal to the clan. So for this reason, Chaotic Ninja are actually going to be uh, the rarest of the bunch. Now, a lone wolf ninja, on the other hand, doesn't belong to a clan. It's possible that he may have been kicked out. Um, maybe his clan was destroyed by another, another power. Or he may have left his clan voluntarily. The main drawback, though, to being a lone wolf ninja is it means that you start play with an enemy, usually a powerful one that you know, you're probably going to want to face somewhere down the line, but at the start of your career, you have no hopes of defeating that person. They also give some kits for non-ninjas, and they refer to these as shinobi. So most of the other classes can become shinobi. The only exceptions are the paladin and the druid. So these would be specialists within the clan. So the main benefit that most of them get is they do get access to a couple thieving abilities, usually climbing walls or hiding. Uh, an example of how it might work, a Shinobi Ranger, for example, is going to be the clan's wilderness specialist. So he's not really into protecting nature, but his primary responsibility is guiding his clan through the wilderness. Uh, you can also be a shinobi mage, which these would be the members of the clan that specialize in, uh, of course, magic. And I actually had a player in one of my campaigns uh, be a shinobi uh, mage, and it was, it was interesting. He had a fun time playing it. Also, it talks a little bit about demi-humans. Demi I mean, they're 
Of course, ninjas are usually going to be human or half-elf, but, you know, they say that it's always possible that an elf, a dwarf, a gnome, or a halfling could always be adopted into the clan. There's also three types of NPC ninja classes. Uh, These would be, they're called killers. Um, These are the Ravager, the Punisher, and the Eliminator. So all three of them are different, just basically different types of assassins that have different ways that they, or different methods they use when they're killing. And they also have another option called Spies. So this is intended to be the a substitute in a campaign where maybe you want to allow ninja-like characters, you just don't want them to be ninjas. Chapter 4 is Proficiencies and Martial Arts. So, of course, there's a lot of interesting proficiencies in here, uh, like style analysis. You can try to guess what the uh, type of martial arts style your opponent is using. And then there's others like uh, detect signing or, you know, like looking for signs and such, uh, night vision. So you can give yourself better than average, uh, low light vision. And of course there's a skills that let you work with poisons because ninjas would use poison if that was necessary. We also see the broad group and tight group weapon proficiencies, uh, from the fighter's handbook in here. They also bring in some of the Uh, martial arts stuff that was introduced in Oriental Adventures. Now, they do stress in here that the uh, martial arts here are intended to be very broad, because with many martial arts, there are different styles. I mean, Kung Fu. Yeah, there's, you know, there's dozens of types of Kung Fu. There's, you know, I've practiced Tiger Claw Kung Fu. There's also Eagle Claw Kung Fu. Uh, I've heard of a couple other different types of uh, Tiger Kung Fu's. There's Crane Kung Fu, um, Lion Kung Fu. So lots of different brands there. So, you know, they really, in the case of Kung Fu, they really had to to simplify it. Um, Also, karate is another example. There's different styles of karate out there, but they try to use it as a very generic martial art. And anyone can get proficiency in martial arts. You use your not your weapon proficiencies. And this is where I think it can be very helpful for any class. Because when you get proficiency in a martial art, it gives you a few different uh, abilities. It gives you an additional unarmed attack. Uh, also, it changes the amount of damage you're going to do with an unarmed attack. You gain an armor class bonus. There's certain martial arts techniques you can learn, though they do also, it also does say though weapons allowed. Um, exactly how you want to interpret this, I guess that's up to you. Now, when we were using these rules in one of my campaigns, and also another one that I played in, but I wasn't actually running, we made a couple house rules for use in martial arts. Uh, the first one was the AC modifier. For example, if you take Akijitsu, uh, that's a soft martial art that gives you a minus three bonus to your armor class. Okay, so then you could take a fighter, learn that proficiency, and hey, you get plate mail already. There's your armor class zero before dex bonus or anything else. 
But one of the limitations we put on it is you only get your armor class bonus if you're using unarmed attacks or if you're using the weapons associated with that style. You know, otherwise you could have a fighter in plate mail that's getting that bonus while using a big, huge, double-bladed battle axe, which is not one of the weapons that particular style allows. At least the rationale that I felt behind using that rule is, well, since different styles teach different weapons, in theory, the footwork and the body mechanics that you use with your martial art may not work as well with weapons that your style doesn't train in. Uh, For example, they do introduce a tight group of karate weapons, which is the bow staff or quarter staff, uh, sai, nunchucks, uh, kama, and, okay, there's another one, Uh, I'm forgetting it, just a second, and tanfa. So the rationale would be for karate, since that style trains in those weapons, the footwork and body mechanics you use in karate may work great with a tanfa or a nunchucks, but probably wouldn't translate very well if you're using like a two-handed sword. So a little background though, you might wonder, okay, well, karate, how come they can only use those types of weapons? Well, and that has to do with, uh, just there was a time in the history, I don't remember, I think it was Okinawa, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, people who were not part of the warrior class or the upper classes, they were forbidden from carrying swords or carrying most types of weaponry. So practitioners of karate back then, or what would become karate, they learned how to use different everyday objects as weapons. Now a bow staff, that's pretty easy. You know, it's just, you can use it as a walking stick. Easy to make, easy to replace. The comma is actually a sickle. So, you know, if you were carrying around a comma, you could just say, well, I'm a farmer and I'm using a comma because, or I have a comma because I need it to tend to my crops. The tonfa is another weapon that started out as an agricultural implement. Uh, Tanfa was used when you were turning certain types of grinding wheels. But as far as a weapon, it can actually be quite devastating because since it's right up against your forearm, it offers great defensive options. Uh, Plus, you can use it as a club. You can use it for punching and jabs. Also very good for... Uh, doing different types of locks to immobilize an attacker. Nunchucks, well, they started out as a type of grain thrasher. The only weapon that, from what I understand, there's some debate as to whether it actually had an agricultural use was this, is the Psy. I think one of my friends was saying that, because uh, he used to take a class in karate weapons, that it may have been something used with like tra- like lifting bales of hay off of a off of a wagon but in any case you know sai can still be very uh useful as weapons because you know you can use it to catch and trap and even disarm an opponent's sword there's a variety of special maneuvers that 
uh, you can take if you have proficiency in a martial art. Now, these are not really going to be anything too flashy or dramatic. So really, uh, most of these are very grounded in reality. So this could be helpful if you want to maybe use your D&D campaign or use the D&D rule set rather for a a modern day setting where you don't want fancy martial arts moves like throwing fireballs and things like that. Really about the only thing in here that's not too terribly realistic, um you there are some st- some special maneuvers where you can levitate um or where you can use chi attacks, basically your unarmed attacks count as magic weapons. They do also have a couple techniques that are kind of based in uh, folklore or popular culture. They have one called Distance Death. And there was a martial artist, uh, George Dillman. Now, George Dillman is... He's one of those guys who... Some people don't take him very seriously, but he is legitimately a a karate expert. And, you know, he has trained with um, various uh, who's who in martial arts like Bruce Lee and uh, Wally J. And he even uh, trained a little bit with Muhammad Ali. So the guy does have some, you know, legitimate martial arts skills. But he also claimed he could do these things like knocking you out without touching you. Uh, some people call this technique dim mock. Now, as cool as these techniques are, uh, they've never really stood up to scientific uh, investigation. But still, if you are running a fantasy or a fantasy-inspired campaign, they can, they're can they okay in that case. So you, you could go ahead, go nuts. Uh, go ahead and uh, do those crazy distance death techniques where you just wave your hand and someone falls over or is paralyzed. In the next chapter, chapter 5, um, they do introduce a variety of new weapons, uh, specifically ones that uh, are native to Asia, whether it's Japan or uh, there's a few there that I believe are uh, native to China. So this is good because, you know, they usually you're not going to find stuff like that in the core rule book because, you know, since Dungeons and Dragons is primarily made for a European style setting, the core book didn't really have anything to do with Asian weaponry. They did introduce some of it in the Complete Fighter's Handbook, and I'm sure the uh, Arms and Equipment Guide probably... Uh, had it as well, but they do provide provide uh, several new weapons in here, and they even do have a couple of pictures, which is nice for people who might not know what some of these weapons look like. And, of course, they talk about the many, many, many interesting little doohickeys that a ninja could use, such as flash powder or uh, pepper grenades folding ladders. Um, they also talk about the uh, that kite I was talking about, which I, I don't know if there's any historical evidence to support it, um, but obviously that's going to be a very dangerous uh, skill to try to learn how to use. Oh, unless you've got a ring of feather fall, I guess. 
They also introduced some new magic items and uh, magic weapons. One magic weapon they introduced, which I can actually see as having uh, interesting applications in a campaign, is an honor katana. Now, an honor katana is basically the ancestral sword. So it's going to be something that a family is going to be very watchful of. And they are they're created using the same rules for intelligent swords. So these are always going to be very uh, strong magic items. And if a family sword goes missing, it's said that the family will go to great lengths to try to retrieve it. So that could pose some interesting ideas for a campaign. Maybe your party encounters an honor sword in the treasure trove of a monster. And this could be good if you're introducing characters who aren't from an Asian-inspired setting uh, into this strange new world. You know, they might think they just found a really nice sword. They may not realize that it's actually the sword that belongs to some powerful noble. And they might wonder why people are trying to always steal this sword from them. Or, you know, why people are threatening to kill them if they don't give it back to them. Or another way you could use it is it could be a good plot device. Uh, Maybe the players are hired by a nobleman whose sword was taken. And they want him to go track down the, the sword as well as bring the thieves to justice. Chapter 6 goes into, uh, it's called Country and Clan. So this gives you a little bit of uh, information about uh, Japan and Japanese society. I'm not sure how historically accurate it is, but it does give you uh, some good ideas if you are going to be uh, developing a campaign that does take place in a setting that is inspired by a feudal Japan. Chapter 7 and 8 give you a lot of good information about how to roleplay a ninja, as well as how to use the ninja in a campaign. And the chapter 8, which is, well, using ninjas in a campaign, it's called Campaigning the Ninja. It does give you some options for using ninjas in an all-ninja campaign, or maybe if you are the only ninja in a group of non-ninja. And I did have a player uh, do a ninja in a campaign that I was playing in, and I remember the dungeon master was talking to me outside of the game, because he knows I'm not one of those people who's going to metagame, but uh, he mentioned that he had some interesting things planned for that character because while the character was going to help us, he had his own agenda that he had to follow. So, yeah, he would help us, but it was only because we happened to be uh, going in the same direction as he was. Unfortunately, the guy running that campaign, his work schedule changed, so we weren't able to do his campaign anymore. And as a result, well, we never really got to see where it went. But it's still, I think it did have some interesting potential and some uh, interesting ideas that, unfortunately, we just never got a chance to uh, see what the how the Game Master would have carried those out. 
And finally, the book ends with a few sample ninjas. So I could see that using those as NPCs um, or just some guidelines for or inspiration for how you might create a ninja character. So all in all, I like the Ninja's Handbook a lot. And perhaps one of the reasons is I like playing fighters. So for me, there's a lot of useful information in there with the martial arts. Uh, Also, this can be a good book for people who, well, maybe you want to play a monk or a martial artist character in second edition, but you really don't want to... Uh, use the monk from first edition. So in this case, you could easily just create a fighter and load him up with unarmed combat skills. Uh, Though I know there is also a priest kit called the fighting monk, and this is intended to be like your Shaolin monk, you know, kung fu fighting type character. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and Uh, Definitely pick up the Ninja's Handbook if you have a chance and if you think it sounds interesting. So I hope you have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.